Welcome to Stay Reading, a modern take on the book club. I'm Chris Penrose. And I'm Megan Yuri Young. Today we have Bianca Van Orion and James Keast in conversation. For those of you out there who don't really know me, I'm a big mental health advocate, and Bianca is one of those supporters that I look to time and again. She's also a writer, producer, and yoga teacher. And James is a writer as well. He also serves as editor-in-chief at Exclaim and is consistently hilarious on Twitter. Bianca and James, welcome to Stay Reading. Thanks. I'm Thank happy you. to be here. So the first question we always have is, what kind of reader are you? James. Um, <clears throat> I think lately I've become a, a deconstructionist reader. Okay. I Because I've been an editor for almost 25 years now professionally, mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways I think I've been, I am an editor by brain makeup it's like wired into I, you it's, now. I've been an it's editor hardwired. since I was in high school and would read something and just go why is this wrong <laughs> uh, and so I think that <laughs> I I read now looking at uh, how everything is made up in its parts I see a sentence and I see its parts I see a paragraph I see a story and I just see the parts and what works and what doesn't work, and I find myself uh, using metaphors like a mechanic where mm. the story's kind of working, but there's a clanking sound in the second half that we need to fix kind right, of right, thing right. where, in my mind, that's how I read it, and there's a problem with the flow or something in my head, that's a clanking sound that we need to fix in the flow of the story. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I've I come to see language now increasingly. So are there ever times where you read something where you're just it's not seeing slow. anything? There's no issue. There's no clank. There's no like it just. It's just a well oiled machine. Be a reader. Uh, those are the best times. Uh, are they I, rare? They are increasingly rare. Uh, even even reading for pleasure because I read so much for work and that part of my brain has to be on all the time. Yeah. That. Uh, that when I read something that's like, oh, I'm just really enjoying this. It's it's a, a rarity and and uh, it's just nice. It's like uh, driving an expensive car on a really smooth highway. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think of like the, I don't know enough about expensive cars, but to your metaphor, I was actually trying to think of an analogy of like, is there, you know, what's the like Bentley off the lot, that, yeah. you know, that you get to read? Um, Bianca, what kind of reader are you? Yeah, I was just going to quickly ask if you can turn that off because that would be awesome. I don't think I can. <laughs> um, what kind of reader am I? Uh, I guess I'm like just staring at a screen all the time consuming like social media content for work that I don't want to do that when it comes to reading for pleasure. Um, so I I tend to read like front to back of all of the, the novels and books that are stacked in my home. Amazing. So you Amazing. actually consume, like, because I, I, I I'm like that too. physical paper. Physical paper, but also you read it from beginning to end, or do you pick up different books along the way? Uh, I'll have, like, two going at a time, but mostly one. Um, yeah, and I'll go front to back even if I, like, hate it the whole yeah. time. And then I'm like, like I... why did I read that whole thing <laughs> at the end? But, I feel yeah, like you're I, a like, traditionalist. have to swallow a traditional Well, it's a, it sounds like a retreat as well. And I'm wondering, like, one, it's looking at the screen all day. The chance to like look at paper um, is one thing, but I think I wonder whether the idea of like wanting to finish the book in one continuous story is kind of a retreat as well. Because social media, it's like 
you're looking mm-hmm. at something about someone's vacation then you're looking at something about yeah. like a party or you're looking at something about like yeah and then house. someone calls and, you and you like yeah so switch. there's so many different narratives that are constantly interrupting each other versus like this is one narrative that's building mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i think i i kind of like the the very different <laughs> brain i have to use for that yeah, yeah i also like i always also feels like an accomplishment to actually finish a book to me you know what i mean yeah. like anyhow yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of unfinished books that I have in my house. Um, so, James, you have a book in your hands. I did. You uh, you asked me to bring one, and so I brought the <laughs> one that I uh, most recently finished. And it's uh, it's not intentionally on brand, but it is a music book. And it's a former uh, former uh, contributor of Exclaim, a, a guy named Michael Barkley, uh, wrote a book about the tragically hip mm. Um, called The Never-Ending Present, the story of Gordowney and the Tragically Hip. And um, up front, I'm not a giant Tragically Hip fan. Like, you know, I like them. I've, you know, went to school in Kingston in the early 90s. I have been more suffused with the Tragically Hip than I think most Canadians even. And But the reason why is uh, also Michael isn't, he's, he's not coming at this as a fanatical mm-hmm. Tragically Hip fan. Uh, and yet he wrote uh, one of the best books about music that I've ever read. And certainly wow. I, I would consider it a landmark in, in Canadian uh, criticism. Mm. Wow. It's really good. Wow. So, so like what makes it stand out so much? Because uh, in your career, I mean, you've been writing, reading and around um, music. Yeah. And I mean, to be to be upfront, I've edited Michael for years and and uh, he's written for the magazine for for since the 90s. And um, what I find really fascinating is that uh, is two things. One is that he has uh, almost no concern for the story and lives of the band. Mm-hmm. You don't learn what anybody's you barely learn about anybody's life or family. You don't learn about mm-hmm. their upbringing. You don't. It's 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 not relevant to him as a fan, and it's not relevant to most fans. It's not information or access that you would normally get. And so he said, "Look, this isn't interesting. What's interesting is the band that they are and were, and the the work that they made, mm-hmm. and also the place that it holds in a larger context, not just of Canadian culture, but of music and of performance and of art." And that's one of the things that what I find really fascinating is he, uh, Michael, takes the all the intellectual curiosities that he would have about any band, but applies them to a band without uh, a sense of hagiography. It's not a worship of the tragically hip. In fact, there's a chapter in this book that questions whether or not the hip are even a good band, Uh, where they're just like, are they even like, are they even worth all of this? Wow. Uh, there's a chapter about cover bands and tribute bands, and there are a lot of tragically hip tribute bands uh, that are still working. And uh, there's a lot about, um, obviously, Gordowney uh, um, had brain cancer. And then so there's a lot about the nature of healing and art and uh, the ways in which those things uh, can play with each other and how um, illness and creativity can... can uh, you know, play out in different spheres. Uh, um, it's just it's just a a, a really uh, interesting and disciplined intellectual exercise to follow all of the threads that this story uh, leads you to. Where it's just like, oh, that seems interesting. 
let's explore that for a while. There's a chapter uh, about performance, but specifically about Gord Downey as a dancer <laughs> and what, as a physical performer and mover, uh. like let's talk to some some dancers, some professional dancers and some dance experts about what he's doing on stage and what uh, meaning and um, and uh, what he's conveying physically through his through his onstage presence. And it's something that I don't consider when I when I usually read about a rock band. It's not it's not an angle. Um, you know, he there's a chapter about Gord as literature and and as a poet and a writer, but also which is sort of to be expected. He's a published right, right. poet. Could expect that. Yeah. Uh, but the dancer chapter, I was like, oh, okay, now we're into some interesting new territory that I have not. I was not expecting to explore. I think what's really interesting already, just getting um, that great in-depth like uh, review of this book, is that we think of criticism in in our own ways, and we can get lazy. You know what I mean? Like we are sometimes we're not even creative with our our critiques, not criticism, sorry, but our critiques of certain works, and to mm -hmm. see him actually think outside of the box and say, let's explore these things, especially in a day and age, I don't know when this was written, um, but in a day and age, and I want, wonder if you have thoughts on this, where um, the person and the talent are so immersed now, or so inter integrated, where um, we look at a talent and we want to know the, the, their story, we want to know about their love life, we want to know all these nitty-gritty, but what does that even have to do with what they're why they're where they are. You know what I mean? I mean, it obviously does have something to do, but to be able to separate the two and not um, focus on maybe the gossip necessarily sometimes well, is so refreshing. Story. Like, I think sometimes we just get so caught up in yeah. people's come-up story, but their process or the significance of their work. But it's like, look how they dance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're dancing in the current moment. But that's, that's, a, that's, that's cool. a cool point around, like, Gord Downey's just not... You think of him as a writer, but... The, he has a presence, right? Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and and he's intentional about that presence, or maybe it's intuitive, but mm -hmm. getting some people who spent their whole life studying movement mm -hmm. to talk about that is is a cool angle. I wonder, um, Bianca, what do, you, what do you have for us? <laughs> what do I have for, <laughs> yes. for you? Um, the first one listed on my list of books that I've read recently. <laughs> Let's um, wait, with side note, as Bianca said, she, she hates the screen. She's currently sitting here with a computer, the first for stay reading. With for my print books. But it's also because she's in the middle of moving, so there's a... there's. Reason, uh, yeah, I'm moving and like literally all of my most important books have been shipped to London as soon as Megan texted me like, please bring some books. <laughs> like, oh, well, I've got none. Um, but you still have. Yeah, I have I have some some things to, to share. Um, the last like kind of life changing book that I read was Reality is Not What It Seems by Carlo Rovelli. Um, it's essentially like physics for dummies. Um, <laughs> he kind of goes through like every era of like what scientists have discovered about what we know about reality. Um, and then like talks about like the current most predominant like understandings of, of reality um, and which one he he thinks more to be true mm. and why and that type thing. Um and it kind of just, like, shakes your whole perception of the world. Um, I don't know how else to explain it in besides that. It, was there a specific way that it, like, it for you specifically, that you're like, oh, I'm looking at this differently now? Or is it literally just a general sense of reality shifting? Uh, of perspective? 
yeah, it's it's a shift of perspective. He talks obviously about like what science has discovered. So you're like, science must be right. But mm-hmm. then he like goes on to be like, also science has been disproven this many times. <laughs> yeah. And now we're here knowing this about reality. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't look anything like what Newton said, for mm-hmm. example. Um, but like our understanding of it is based on what Newton discovered, even though that's not like the predominant way of thinking anymore. I'm still trying to understand that whole thing of like, I know Stephen Hawking was trying to work on Einstein's theory of relativity and how it fits into quantum mechanics from Newton, I believe. But basically it's like there's three main theories that individually can be proven to be true, Mm -hmm. but the three of them don't work together. Really? And so what Hawking and other people were trying to do is come up with a unified theory of everything. So it's how do these three theories that we prove separately um, yeah. that don't work together, get proven together. And there's this huge market for, like, Ner- Neil Turok and Shio Keiku and, like, other um, physicists that are out there who can... Anyone who can communicate what the forefront of physics is trying to figure out in a way that people who are n- didn't take grade 11 physics can understand is, like, gold. Yeah, so that's exactly what this book is trying to do is, like... Yeah. Explain based on the history of physics what we know about physics currently. Um, So what's the passage? The passage is, There is no finality, no purpose in this endless dance of atoms. We, just like the rest of the natural world, are one of the many products of this infinite dance. The product, that is, of an accidental combination. Nature continues to experiment with forms and structures, and we, like the animals, are the products of a selection that is random and accidental over the course of eons of time. Mm. Essentially talking about, like, how how reality has unfolded in this certain way, and we're out here trying to understand it. Um, and, and, yeah, basically what I've taken from this book is that everything's essentially like a quantum field or like a wave, like, even, like, me touching your leg yeah. is, like, you understanding that through waves, mm-hmm. basically. I'm mm-hmm. not actually here touching your leg. I'm just, like, <laughs> a wave that you're perceiving to be yeah, touching I, you. Yeah, I remember taking one course, too. Uh, one of the things that... So the only thing that I ever, I think, studied or was exposed to that really made me think of quantum physics was this... Um, bizarre I don't even know what class I was in but it was this bizarre uh video and first of all it was saying that we don't actually touch each other we're just like there's all this space or something or maybe it's the opposite I don't even remember well, but the thing there is more space, space. there's like 99.9 yeah so the majority of uh, any matter is mm-hmm. space for all the listeners out there the environment we are recording in doesn't seem to be that important because you can't see the space. But to get beautiful sound, whether it's for a podcast, recording music, or even for film, TV, and advertisements, the space you're in and how it runs matters. That's why we record Stay Reading out of Post Office Sound in Liberty Village. From the raw audio to creating a sound bed and all of the magic that happens in post, the difference can not only be heard, it can be felt. So to all the creatives out there, if you need great audio, think Post Office Sound. So I have the class, the Glass Castle, by Jeanette Walls, and um, have any of you guys read this before? No. So it's a memoir 
but it reads like fiction. And essentially, it's the upbringing of a, of a girl, and I think she has a brother. I've read this years ago, and... Um, but she's brought up very unconventionally. Like, her her mom and dad, essentially, like, they just drove across country all the time. They never had a home. Um, and it was, it, it like, for lack of a better word again, it's just very unconventional. And obviously, she, you know, when we're living in a, in a society of convention, we often crave un- the unconventional. But then when you're living an unconventional life, you're craving convention. So there's, there's a passage about Santa Claus in here that I wanted to read. I never believed in Santa Claus. None of us kids did. Mom and dad refused to let us. They couldn't afford expensive presents and they didn't want us to think we weren't as good as other kids who, on Christmas morning, found all sorts of fancy toys under the tree that were supposedly left by Santa Claus. Dad had lost his job at the Gypsum and when Christmas came that year, we had no money at all. On Christmas Eve, dad took each of us out into the desert uh, night one by one. Pick out your favorite star, dad said. I like that one, I said. Dad grinned. That's Venus, he said. He explained to me that planets glowed because reflected light was constant and stars twinkled because their because their light pulsed. I like it anyway, I said. What the hell, Dad said. It's Christmas. You can have a planet if you want. And he gave me Venus. Venus didn't have any moons or satellites or even a magnetic field, but it did have an atmosphere sort of similar to Earth's, except it was super hot, about 500 degrees or more. So, Dad said, when the sun starts to burn out and Earth turns cold, everyone might want to move to Venus to get warm, and they'll have to get permission from your descendants first. We laughed about all the kids who believed in the Santa Claus myth, the Santa myth, and got nothing for Christmas but a bunch of cheap plastic toys. Years from now, when all the junk is got, they got is broken and long forgotten, Dad said, you'll still have your stars. Oh, wow. Aww. And I think that kind of plays into this concept of reality, but also myths and, like, just everything. There's so much in that passage. I really, for me, that, like, I think about how we were talking about um, Gord Downey, some of the connections first was the dance that you brought that up and your passage, Rianca was talking about this Adams being this dance, but it's when we're talking about perception, it's like, in the moment, as, as a parent, like I can relate, at, you know, I have three children, you want to be able to give them all these things. And when finances are tight, you know, for birthdays, for Christmas and that kind of stuff, um, can be a lot of pressure. But like, yeah, it's true. You know, do you remember what you, this toy you got, you know, 10 years later? Do you remember, I'm actually my son, now he's, he's been making a list for his birthday, you know, things that he's interested in getting. He started asking me, what, what was your favorite toy when you were, like, mm-hmm. my age? Or how, what was your favorite toy when you were 10? Or what was it, the toy you didn't like the most? Like, he's asking, <laughs> and I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, I can't, I vaguely remember that, you know? I remember Popples. But I moments mean, like that weird. star interaction, you know? Like, yeah. like your dad bringing you out into the desert and having that conversation about Venus, like, years later. Like, it's, it, in the, as a parent, you feel like I have to give them this physical thing. But that time together and that thoughtfulness, it would be what sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, like, yeah, just looking at this book again, uh, when you when you brought it out, I was thinking about Gord Downey, and I wasn't a big tragically hip listener <clears throat> at all. Like, I couldn't name you a song, but I've heard their music by osmosis, mm-hmm. you know? But, like, 
who he was as a person and, and things he stood up for, especially like in those last days of his life, um, stick out for, more for me. Um, and I also think that when you brought up, when you touched on like art and music and healing and illness, um, I find that reading fits in there too. And I know you really wanted to talk a little bit about how we read. Um, and I'm not sure if that's part of this conversation that I'm about to have. But, like, even... So this is... She's a um, a writer now. And and it's interesting. If you guys ever read this book, like, you actually just see she her grow up. She's, like, recounting her, her up, uh, unconventional upbringing. Um, but it's it's interesting to see how she's processed a lot of her, what she didn't realize was trauma through writing and then processed and then, you know, put pen to paper and to remember these beautiful moments, even though there was a lot of um, hard moments within her life, um, but she can still pick it out. And I think, I don't know if that's the conversation in that chapter about music and healing and therapy, but I just feel like it's all related in that way. It's interesting to to have somebody who uh, is a writer write their own uh, sort of origin story uh, as an adult, because I think part of that is uh, an act of performance, right? Mm-hmm. Where you are taking all of the skill and all of the accumulated knowledge that you have, and you're applying it to your younger self. And, I, and it, in some ways, that's an, an its own act of healing. Mm-hmm. Um and I, but I think that's really interesting. I'm very curious about um, performance and uh, the performance of authenticity. Mm. Where uh, and and uh, I mean, this goes back to Gord in some ways, but in in all art or music or whatever, where um, you have to practice in order to seem authentic and in the moment. Uh, you know, you have to. You, you can't you can't be processing your trauma in the moment of performance. That work has to have already been done in yeah. order to get to the moment uh, mm-hmm. that you can perform. You know, a writer, she can't write her story until she's gone through and processed all of her story. And, and doing all of that work is what makes her the writer she is mm-hmm. now. And now that she is that writer, now she can go back mm-hmm. and tell the story of how... You know, it's only mm-hmm. when you arrive th- that you can then go back and, and talk about how you got there mm-hmm. in, a, in yeah. a weird way. You kind of mm-hmm. can't tell your story in the middle of it. Yeah. That's powerful. You huh? know what? Actually, I sat in on a, a panel at TIFF, and I'm forgetting the director's name now, but he was uh, writing a script loosely based on an experience in his life. And, he, and someone in the audience asked him about the process of him writing. And interestingly enough, I fully think that your perspective on writing is exactly my perspective on writing and many per- people's but he actually for this specific story had he he started writing this experience um I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna reference the title of the movie later when I remember it and um he he wrote it while he was still processing and he actually spoke to that. He said that the only way that he felt the script was powerful was that he was figuring it out as he was writing it rather than have already processed it and wrote it down from not memory necessarily, but just like from the space of having already somewhat figured out, he actually used the figuring out to like drive the tension 
within the script that he was writing. Yeah. Well, it's really what interesting. What I hear in that, though, is also like, yeah, what I hear in that is the developing the skill. You know, you go through these experiences, you develop this ability to express, mm -hmm. and then once that ability to express it is, is developed to a certain point, you can go back to those experiences. Like, I'd interviewed Jill Scott um, when um, the album Be Beautifully Human mm -hmm. um, came out, and we were talking about the song Rasul, which is, she describes the first time she's someone that she knew she saw murdered. Uh -huh. And uh, she had, you know, over a long course of her life, developed her singing ability, her writing ability, and had forgotten about this moment. And then all of a sudden, it just came back to her. She said she could smell um, his scent mm -hmm. and, and see this whole moment that she'd forgotten about, like, as if he was mm -hmm. in the room and hadn't processed it you know she she cried even in the interview she started crying when she started talking about this mm -hmm. at the concert she did in toronto is that the government um <laughs> the she, government she, yeah yeah before <laughs> it became a condo um <laughs> she said something to the crowd about like you know someone that you've lost if there's anyone like say their name say their name and you know it's like this is before people had phones out there's still lighters you know um in the audience and um yeah people started saying names and this whole moment created around this song that was not just healing for her but it's healing for other healing people for but it came through this like ability to mm -hmm. develop this skill over time mm -hmm. and then later be able to um look back on your life I think that's also a really huge skill that you have to learn though is to be able to like look back on your life in like an objective way um which is, there's this quote that says, uh, the older I get, the more touchdowns I scored in high school. <laughs> yes. You know what, I want to be that person, because I want to remember, like, my life is a, a series of touchdowns rather than, but yeah, no, that's I've, true. I've, like, blacked out my entire childhood, essentially. <laughs> like, I don't remember anything. I would love to be able to write, like, a loosely memory fiction Would you ever? Book. I've started writing one. Um, not to toot my own horn, but I feel like my life has been really interesting and I want to like have it on paper for myself, mm -hmm. but I like often sit down and I'm like, wait, I don't actually remember anything <laughs> that happened ever. So yeah, that's, that's going to take a lot of meditation. I think you actually, do you want to share? I do, but I know, I think James, you had something. That oh, I just up. had a passage from Michael's book that kind of speaks to, um, the idea of performance in the moment yeah. and the skill that. Uh, it requires to so, get. Yeah, your, let's please. let's read that and then and I, I'll share something. It's sort of particularly timely, I think, and the the impetus this um, this book came out uh, two years ago now, okay. I guess a year and a half ago. Uh, it was commissioned when the final tour and Gord's diagnosis was announced, but came out after. Okay. Um, and there's in fact an entire chapter about the last show, the final show that was broadcast across the country. And, and I remember and, that uh, again. I'm same with Chris. I wasn't the Kingston, biggest. So. Um, Tragically, or I wasn't, not to say I'm not a fan, but I'm not very familiar, but I remember that last <coughs> concert. So this is a, a little bit long, but I think it's relevant to the conversation. Uh, when the final Tragically Hip tour was announced, people marveled at the fact that Gord Downey considered himself physically and mentally able to do it after having two brain surgeries. But there's also the emotional component. How do you conduct your own living wake in front of thousands of people every night? How do you maintain composure during such a prolonged farewell performance? People expected that the shows would be somber. They were not. 
The tragically hip were total pros here, armed with skill and determination. Grace 2, the song, ended the final encore on, of August 14, 2016, the second of three Toronto shows. The song has also always concluded with uh, Downey screaming the words, Him? Here? Now? The lyric is mysterious. Perhaps the narrator is being asked to kill another man. Who knows? Point being, something terrible is about to happen to that guy. On that tour, that li this lyric meant for the audience the very real possibility that Gord Downey could have a brain seizure on stage and die in front of their eyes. Him? Here? Now? Everyone at every show walked into the venue knowing that, maybe not even realizing it until they heard Downey sing that line. That night in Toronto, someone uploaded a clip of that moment. It was viewed more than a million times in the next year. In it, Downey screams the line with increasing intensity as he had done for years. Many people watching this tour had not seen the hip in years, so that this may have been new information. Then his face appears to crack with emotion and the audience finally sees the catharsis they've been seeking, a look of real pain and distress. The lasts at least 30 seconds as he continues to scream. He follows that with a brief flailing, seemingly helpless and frustrated dance. Through the entire show, he's been a model of strength until clearly compromised under clearly compromised circumstances. This is the moment where he loses it. Or does he? Those screams are in time with the music. A split second after the band lands on the final extended climactic note, Gord Downey says, with his usually, usual authoritative tone, Thank you very much. Thank you, Toronto. He then turns toward the drum set to retrieve his mic stand. He picks it up. As the band prepares their final punctuation, Downey lands the mic stand right on the beat. Is that a man who just had a breakdown on stage? No. That's a professional. Wow. <laughs> That's so powerful. Wow. wow. <laughs> wow. Um... This really ties in. There's this book um, by Jordan Ferguson called Donuts. It's about Jay Dilla, um, a producer who um, he's he really shaped so many of the producers we hear today. Um, phenomenal talent, but he also like goes back to um, a lot of the music, whether it's like Tribe Called Quest or Sun Village, Busta Rhymes, like early stuff like that. Um, and he was in the hospital that Biggie died in, that Tupac died in, um, and he was really sick. And he had gotten friends of his to bring his production equipment and vinyl into the hospital and recorded this album, Donuts. Um, and I would just say to anyone, if you haven't listened to this album, it's a, give it a gift, a gift to yourself, knowing that one of the greatest producers to ever make music created this like pour it out, out of his heart and listen to it straight through it's made to be listened to it's like 40 minutes one straight listen um but here's this little description of this moment it says all as dilla's health continued to decline despite sounding jarring and scattershot donuts is a deceptively unified album a work that challenges and confronts expectations designed to be listened to in its entirety a rarity in a genre not known for being album oriented as Dilla told an interviewer in 2005, and maybe the only public comment he made on the album before his death, it's just a compilation of stuff that I thought was way, sorry, was a little too much for the MCs. That's basically what it is, you know, me flipping records that people really don't know how to rap on, but they want to rap on. And then he adds, Donuts was never meant for you. It was never meant for me. It's a private and personal record, a conversation between an artist and his instrument which just happens to be the history of recorded music. It's the final testament of a man coming to terms with his mortality 
<laughs> I didn't expect to be moved like this. Sorry, guys. Uh, a last love letter to his family and the people he cared about. It's clearly a record about death, the evidence found in its rebus of samples. Sequencing and song titles leaves little doubt of that. And I think of like Dilla, just this master of production, and Gord Downey, this master of lyric and performance and music, um, going, both going through, like facing their own mortality straight on, like knowing it's coming, and still wanting to pour out a little bit more um, before that moment that they don't know when, but they know soon is coming. Well, what's interesting is I, I have this conversation a lot lately, and I've brought up this book so many times, so I'm not going to even bring up the book, but just the concept of death is that I think in North America, we are afraid of death. We're afraid of the concept. We're afraid of just acknowledging it. Um, and like in the uh, in Buddhism, for instance, it's like weaved into their lifestyle and their conversation. And so this idea that you have, it's almost like you ha- when you're met with your, when you know you're going to die, then you like have this moment of clarity or 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 you want to or especially with that caliber of human those people who are already giving parts of themselves to the world and to see them elevate even more and do something and it's again it's not even for the world it's just they're just doing it because they have to almost Mm -hmm. maybe it's like without even thought it's just this is what they need to do before they pass but I just think it's just it just reinforces in me like how I always want to just realize like anything can happen anytime live that way as much as we can also knowing though that hopefully we don't meet our end sooner than later like sooner than later Mm. but I just that's what I get from these passages from that and from it's just like how do we live that way without knowing our mortality is there on like right before us yeah, I mean, I think it's also a confused and dark period. There's these moments of clarity that we see from the outside. Mm-hmm, it's true. But also, you know, like I had a friend who um, was creative who passed away this summer um, and she didn't get that opportunity. You know, yeah. she she expressed so deeply this desire to, there's so many more things she wanted to do and so many things she wanted to create and wasn't at this place where she had the, the platform to. And I think that's what I mean there. though, because they, and again, in the moments that you, you don't know what they're what they're going with exactly what they're going through or they're thinking they're just doing. Mm-hmm. But um, that's what I mean. Like, how do we avoid not avoid it? I think a lot of things are unavoidable. But how do we not get to that space and be like, oh, I wish I did this and this and that. That's why um, um, I love I, lo- I really appreciate that concept of like embracing the idea of mortality or mortality, because if anything, it will allow us to like maybe not not take away the fear of living um, and and doing what's true to us, but it just it like gets us helps us get past it so that when we're at that point, we're not feeling that. feeling that. Right. Um, I wonder if you, there's anything else you can share with us. Yeah, I mean, I was just about to bring up a book called All About Love. It's by Bell Hooks. Mm. Um, she has a mm-hmm. chapter in there about like death and our fear of death and the reasons our fear of death um, kind of hinder our our capability to love. Mm. Um, I don't have a passage from that particular chapter, but it's related to exactly what you said. So that, but in Bell Hooks' voice. (laughs) What's the title of the book again? All About Love. All About Love, yeah. Yeah, Bell Hooks is somebody that um, I love how she writes. Like, she's that perfect kind of marriage between having that, like, academic the backpack of knowledge of like the most extraordinary academics 
and the like ability with language of like great novelists and great poets that and and can bring like these things together in the way that she writes whether it's like challenging uh, what masculinity is and and writing for men to rethink masculinity or challenging what love is or the, or the difference between love and politics we think they're two different things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she's able to like show how like no our understanding of familial yeah. love and mm-hmm. romantic love is deeply connected to to politics um our last question always is you've been in this conversation about some of the things that we're we've read or reading what are you going to take from this conversation with you through the day maybe through the rest of the week um i'm going to take an appreciation of the moment mm-hmm. uh, i wasn't expecting this to be uh a little uh musing on mortality on a <laughs> early on the morning yeah. and so i've i've uh yeah i'm gonna be thinking about gord and dilla and bell hooks all day mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome yeah i think i'm gonna do kind of the same but maybe like write things down in the present <laughs> moment and then later analyze them um on the note that that you can't actually create while processing trauma Mm -hmm. but you can go back when you're more skilled and aware um and perform yeah just get it out just get it out you know david sherry andy's a writer from scarborough and his book brothers received like a lot of recognition and awards i think it's going to be made into a film but he wrote it twice and he took 10 years to finish it you know and it's a 150 pages or something it's not like a you know, like War and Peace or something, mm-hmm. you'd think that would take like 10 years to write. But, you know, just write your thing. Yeah. Take time with it. Um, what about you? Or- that I'm going to, I the I really, uh, as a writer myself, um, someone who's done music journalism for a long time as well, I really am curious about um, Michael's approach to mm-hmm. um, this balance between like reverence and irreverence. Like, um, and critique out of a place of like seeking to really tell the story and understanding. I think in this age that we're in, it's a weird thing where it's like criticism is like thrown out just to like through Twitter to make yourself like, you mm-hmm. know, everyone has to have an opinion and mm-hmm. I have to say something about this. Um, and then there's this if you're critical though, like, are you a hater? Um, you know, and then there's this like a lot of content that's coming out now that's kind of like, the people that it's about have too much of a hand Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the creation of it. So then it becomes like this Mm -hmm. kind of promo piece rather than like a story. So I want to check out his work and and think about from my own self how like I can find that space between being irreverent enough to really like explore the story and and not just praise, but still having a reverence for the work. Like I think that's going to be what I take out of this conversation. I think for me, it's definitely a melding of the two. I think I love that we started off with your book because it, um, again, it's like this idea that I think we're we're so cyclical as beings um, on a larger scale and then within our own world that we don't get out of our bubble and we don't think outside the box and all these cliches that I can pull out of my pocket. But like, I think that the way he tackled um, the story of the tragically hip and their and their work specifically is just it's I'm still processing and I love all like how you broke down some of the chapters, um, but then this then right going right into 
quantum physics and reality. <laughs> I just think that's what I like. Literally, this marriage of mm. just constantly working on our perception and constantly working on our concept of um, reality and um, not getting too caught up in what you know, what we know, because mm. we know nothing. Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> You know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> I, I am going to be thinking about Gordani dancing when I, someone says Adams. Thank you for being a part of Stay Reading. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to Stay Reading. And if you want to find any of the titles we discussed today or learn more about our guests, you can always check at double underscore Stay Reading on Instagram. And wherever you listen. Don't forget to rate, comment, subscribe, and share.